having. Wait, we got football to cover. I'm talking about Christian football. Okay, all right. All right, so we're continuing our study, uh, walking through Keller's book, Forgive. Uh, this is the first chapter in the next section of the book. Uh, the first four covered what I would really call a survey of tracing that doctrine through history and scripture and current understanding of forgiveness in society. Now we're turning to really I would call meat and potatoes of this, the understanding forgiveness, which the remainder of the book will focus on. So this week we're doing God of love and fury, which frankly I would say focuses primarily on that vertical dimension of forgiveness that that Tom talked about and highlighted in the first chapter of the book about you know, the vertical, vertical portion as between us and God that drives and informs the understanding of the horizontal portion of forgiveness. Uh, so just be forewarned, I don't know to what extent, uh, though I do think it could come up today, that we'll be talking about that more practical in the weeds. How do we enact these doctrines in our everyday life? That being said, it is important to keep in mind the, these base foundational points uh, because it is what our, or our own conduct and forgiveness flows from is this vertical component. And Keller, about halfway through the book, um, makes an observation. Uh, he, pulling from Romans 11, he, he indicates that oftentimes when Paul is considering and instructing on these points, he would break into doxology, and the one he, one he pointed to is in Romans 11, oh, rich, oh, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And that got me thinking, uh, and I would agree that praise and thanksgiving is a proper first response to these doctrines. Uh, I think that's where we should go first. But, uh, just as praise is a proper response to God's love and wrath and the forgiveness that we have um, at the cross, so too is our own motivation empowered and motivated by this. And this took me back to another lesson that Tom actually taught us through on the power, on our prayer for power. Um, and that passage in, and I'm going to blank on it, is Colossians? Colossians 3? Yes. Uh, and what that teaches us about where our power comes from. So we'll open this morning by just joining Paul in that passage. So if you'll bow with me in prayer. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant us be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's, far more, who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I would put the thesis of this chapter as follows, that our understanding of God requires, of God's forgiveness requires a correct understanding and appreciation of both his wrath and his love. And that both of these concepts and attributes work in unison. They're not in tension. That's something that, that Keller makes a point of. He calls it an apparent tension, but then immediately following up says, in actuality, they work in perfect harmony and and union, and that this is most gloriously revealed in the person of Christ on the cross. So let's uh, dive into the first part, the, the wrath of God. Keller focuses on three kind of fundamental attributes of God to start off with. First, the holiness, righteousness, and justice of God, and how that is worked out in history and in his plan of redemption. And Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is clear. God is holy, righteous, and just. I'm going to pull a few of the passages that, that he referenced. Leviticus 19, and The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
Genesis 18. Far be it from you, this is uh, Abraham speaking to God on behalf of uh, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare with the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? So Abraham, recognizing God's justice, responds and says, how would you? You cannot do that which would be unjust because you, the judge of the world, are just. It is, and we'll get to this in a minute, it is because it is of his nature, he cannot act in contradiction or contrary to his nature. He must act in accordance with it. Psalm 19. Uh, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. So it's, remo- it's important to remember, this is, this is a concept that he fleshed out a little bit more when he was talking about Plato and Socrates, about where, um, where does the authority, wait a minute, I might be thinking of Frame, he was talking about Plato and Socrates, sorry. Where, uh, where does uh, this concept of justice and righteousness flow out of? Where does it derive from? These are qualities and attributes of God, but are they concepts or standards that are intrinsic to him, or are they extrinsic, meaning that he himself is subject to them? And the point that that Frame makes, uh, I was looking back at his his, uh, discussion on the attributes of God, is these are of God's nature, meaning that that which is just is just because it is that which is in conformity with God and his, his, and his attributes. It is not something that stands outside of God. So not only is God holy, righteous, and just, but all that he does is holy because he does it. Um, because these are in his nature, he cannot act contrary to them. And that raises somewhat of the problem for us. Because we are not wholly righteous and just, and we act in rebellion and in wickedness and in sin. So what must God do in response? And the point frame, or not frame, Keller makes is he cannot let sin, evil, and wickedness go unpunished. I'm gonna, he had a good, uh, what was it? Nothing is clear in the Old Testament than that God will do justice, and he cannot shrug wink at or ignore any sin or evil. And the next sentence is one that I underlined, and the reason I did is because it kind of jumped out at me, and I want to get y'all's thoughts on it. But he's uh, referencing Herman Bavinick. Bavinick? I'm not sure if I'm on. Sorry, what? Okay. I'll rely on Rob for the correct pronunciation of that. He argues against the shallow idea that forgiving is natural for God. Now, I want to get your thoughts on that statement, and then I'll give you my thoughts on why that jumped out to me and kind of, I will say it kind of rubbed me wrong. Um, So, this concept of shallow idea that forgiving is natural for God, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so holiness is the natural part of God, I would agree with that, and forgiveness is, would you, how would you, you said it, it flows I want to, and this was actually something when I was reading, reading Frame on, on God's attributes, that he, he, he noted a distinction between, oh goodness, I can't remember what he called the first one, but the first one are God's attributes that are eternal. I think that's what he called them, eternal attributes, his holiness, um, his eternality, his um, omnipotence, and then those that are relative attributes. And the one that he uses as an example is God's lordship is an attribute of God, but it is relative to the fact that he has something over which to be Lord. Um, and I, br- I bring up the distinction because I do think that I would agree that forgiveness is, is in a sense relative to the need for forgiveness. Um, Rob? That's where I, yeah, that's what jumped out to me. For me, the, the, the reason it jumped out to me was because of the word natural, but actually for a different reason. I don't know if I would have 
necessarily chosen that word. And I would I'd be curious as to why he did or if he has a different sort of meaning in mind. The reason I say that is because the remainder of Keller's um, chapter, and I think rightly, fleshes out that God's holiness is also standing side by side with God's love and his redemptive purpose. And so it raises for me the question of, well, doesn't the love of God come in and his desire to exhibit his glory through the redemption of of humanity or redemption of, of the elect, doesn't that come in and sort of raise up this need where, in a sense, forgiveness maybe isn't natural to God, but it is something that results from his other attributes and flows out of those. So for me, that's, it was the word natural that jumped out and said, well, maybe, maybe it's a different word. Maybe, And so that's why I want to get your thoughts because I just I want to make sure that at the outset there's that balanced view or a balanced, we're holding both understandings rightly, that we don't want to say that God is going against his nature in forgiving us. And to say that he's acting in a way that's not natural for me is concerning. Yes? Yeah, Blake? Yeah, that's why I wonder if he's he, he had a different meaning in mind. I don't know when this author wrote. <laughs> And that might be the problem. Um, but for me, it's a, it, it raises the question of, okay, well, let's, let's be careful in our understanding of what's being said here. Because I, I think the word natural for me tripped me up. Now, I mean, Keller immediately moves forward into, um, into discussing that, that the Old Testament is also littered with promises of forgiveness. So that's, that's also clear on the face of Scripture. What I do like is the... Oh, goodness, I can't remember again. He quoted somebody else, but he puts his footnotes at the back. And I can't just look down at the bottom of the page, see who he quoted. I think this is a, maybe a better way of articulating the concept. And it says, where forgiveness is obtained, it is something to be regarded with awe and wonder. And I think that maybe better encapsulates this idea of how God comes into creation and deals with a wretched humanity and brings us back into right fellowship with him, at the same time not compromising either his wrath, holiness, and justice, or his love, mercy, and plan of redemption. I think that is maybe, it doesn't state it as succinctly as, as this one, but I think sometimes uh, brevity can be the enemy of, of uh, right doctrine. <laughs> so, so the Old Testament and frankly, the New Testament as well, littered with examples of God's plan of judgment and his wrath and hatred against sin and wickedness. And yet, we look, and there is example after example after example, and he focused just on the Old Testament, um, of claims and promises of God, not only forgiving, but being a forgiving God. So not only will he act with forgiveness, but his, he is attributed with being a forgiving God. So I wanted to, to talk, walk through just a few of those. Um, Psalm 25:11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 31 or 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your life is renewed like the eagles. That's a, yeah. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. So I actually just took and focused on the Psalms. I mean, he referenced a number of other ones. Are there other examples you can think of, of where God is a, where somebody attributes to God forgiveness or 
that he has the attribute of forgiveness. Or there are examples and stories in, in Scripture where it is worked out. I mean, we'll get to the obvious one at the end, you know, the cross, but... All right, I'll stop bugging y'all, at least for a little while. All right, the last one, and it's one that I really leads into the, for me, the next section. Psalm 143, and I want to listen, listen to how the psalmist presents this. For me, when I read this, it struck me. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. What do we hear? What what strikes the ear? Psalm 143, 1 through 2, if you want to turn there for reference. What is he appealing to? He appealed to God's name earlier. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. But here, what is he appealing to? I hear two things he's appealing to. He's appealing to his righteousness. Oh Lord, you're righteous. Enter not judgment with your servant. But what does he then say about his servant? For no one living is righteous before you. Wait a minute. I'm confused. How is this going to work? All right. The psalmist appeals to God's righteousness to show mercy and to not enter in judgment. Herein lies the apparent tension. <laughs> How can a holy, righteous, and just God forgive sin? How does this work? Keller goes to two passages, or highlights it again in two passages. Numbers 14. And again, listen to the change in what he's talking about. He keeps jumping back and forth. I have him, if, if I was diligent and kind, I would have slides. I'm sometimes neither of each. Um, so I've underlined in italics to, to reference this, but the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers, on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven the people from Egypt until now. So again, side by side. I love it, uh, uh, this is somewhat of an aside, um, I love it whenever people talk about apparent contradictions in Scripture. Uh, and I was like, whoa, they just, you know, here's, here's one, you know, try, try to figure this one out, you know, secular atheist. Uh, explain this one, they're going to look at that and go, wait, wait what's, what's, what's going on here? And yet, these were not even... Uh, taking their premise that these were penned by humans and not, um, not the inspired word of God. Uh, I don't know. For me, I find that the uh, best way to kind of hide contradictory statements is to not put them side by side. Um, you gotta kind of got to bury them away from each other. Um, uh, it's a concept we use in, in uh, legal practice sometimes when we're eliciting testimony from people. We want to bury the bad testimony around a lot of other good testimony so that it kind of loses its sting. It's like, no, no, let's just put it right side by side next to each other. Let's try and, let's try and puzzle this one out. How is the Lord, who is slow to anger and steadfast love and forgives iniquity and transgressions, but he's not going to clear us. He's not going to clear the guilty. Wait a minute. These two sentences don't, don't make sense together. Uh, I, I think uh, it goes again to that, you know, Paul talking about you know, the gospel making, making foolish, making wise, making the wise foolish. It's like they, they, they're going to look at this and tie themselves in knots because they don't understand. The world's not going to understand what we'll get to at the end, which is this makes perfect sense in the context of the cross. Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abiding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So again, mercy, grace, steadfast love, forgiveness, standing side by side with judgment and justice. And I go back to that Psalm 143 passage where we appeal to God's righteousness for his mercy. And how does this compute? Um, I told you I was going to stop bugging you for a little while, but it's been a little while. Can you think of some other examples or statements in Scripture about these two things standing in juxtaposition, where there's an appeal to God's love and righteousness at the same time, and there's kind of an expectation of these things? I don't have any good ones, but I just wanted to, to lean on the combined knowledge and wisdom of, of the group and to fill up time, frankly, because I was running through my notes really fast. All right, Blake. Can't jump ahead. I was stealing my notes, Blake. <laughs> you can't. You got to read my mind and have read my notes beforehand and understand you can't steal. Yeah. Yes, Mike. Yeah, I think it does. I think, uh, and I actually have a list later in my notes. Again, thank you for jumping ahead to my notes. <laughs> but, but be thinking about this, uh, because we, we will get to the point where we're talking about the nature of God's wrath and love being exemplified perfectly at the cross, and most, I would say, most fully there. And think about other times where judgment has been brought against the world. Think about examples in Scripture. I have some that I have listed out. Um, and yet there was the restraint. God restrains the full judgment. Um, the reason I bring it up is because at the cross it was not restrained. Um, but I want to, I have a list. I'm curious if y'all will be able to add to my list of examples of times where we see judgment brought in Scripture, yet the Lord, in His goodness and mercy, restrains it for His good purpose. So, we see this tension. I, 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 did Blake have a thought? I thought I saw... Okay. All right. I'm trying to read body numbers. We see this parent tension in Scripture. How is this understood? I think we also, Keller's point, we also see it reflected in our own understanding. Um, we, we also bring that failure to understand either one, uh, either love, justice, or both into the, when we're reading the context of the New Testament. He brought out John 3.16, which everyone knows. I don't care. It's probably the most well-known passage in Scripture, which is, I don't think, necessarily a bad thing. But, as he points out, it standing alone carries something of a unbalanced understanding of the nature of God and salvation. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it becomes the very standard American version of Christianity. Of, oh, I just, God loves me, and therefore he sent his son to save me. It's a nice, in the abstract, let's talk about the remainder of the context. Uh, salvation from what? John 3.36 makes it clear. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That's a big piece of, of uh, the doctrine of salvation that a lot of us don't understand. I, I, I think it's hard for us to accept that it's not an abstract concept of judgment or wrath that we're being saved from. It is actually God's wrath that we're being saved from. A lot of 
lot of people rebel against that, and I think some churches would reject that as a, as a doctrinal statement. Uh, that it is that our salvation is both provided for by God, but we are saved what from? From God's wrath. And also, what is the means of this salvation? It's nice to talk about Jesus saving the world, but how does he do this? Again, surrounding context, John 3, 14 and 15 talks about how salvation is accomplished. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's very much a sacrificial component to this salvation. It is not just something to the point earlier that is taken lightly or winked at. He doesn't just come in and provide a blanket salvation without any penalty or cost being met or paid for. Similarly, so we, we misunderstand that aspect. Similarly, we also misunderstand the wrath of God. I think this will get into more nuts and bolts of forgiveness as operated in by us later on. Uh, because as God, God stands apart and is separate and can, in a sense, not just in a sense, can do things and operate in ways that we as his creation cannot and should not. We do not bear the sword in the same way God bears the sword. In fact, God has instituted an institution to bear the sword on his behalf. It doesn't do so perfectly by any stretch. But we don't bear that on his behalf in our own conduct. Part of that, I think, is, well, not just part, well, I think a good reason that is, not just the only good reason, is what he points out is that God's wrath is unlike our wrath. When we think of wrath and anger, how do we present or understand this concept of God's wrath and anger? Whenever, whenever you think about anger, do you consider it in a positive or negative light? I'm tempted to call on the younger folks here. Or maybe the older folks. What do you think, Art? <laughs> well, I, I, I kept myself safe by saying both. Without an answer. I know whenever I think about anger in my own life, and when I act it out, it's never, well, it is almost never a good thing. I would say that it is beyond rare that I exercise righteous anger. I don't, I, I would imagine from some of the nodding heads that is true for most, if not all of us. Um, I, I joke, and it's, it's sad that I make this joke, um, and I probably shouldn't make this joke, but that on Sunday mornings, I feel like I need to stop and confess for how I treated my children trying to get them to church. Like, put this, just get me in a wonderful framework, you know, mindset to go to church as I've been yelling at my children all morning. Just try to get them in the car. Just get them in the car. It's like, that's not, that's not a righteous anger. That's an unrighteous anger. <sighs> they also need to repent of their wickedness, but <laughs> that being said, how I responded to it was not appropriate or righteous. When we think about wrath, we don't think about it in the context. We need to understand God's wrath. God's wrath is not lost temper, but is his holiness released judicially against evil. I saw that and I was like, that is, that is a great statement. I can't remember if Keller said it. I think Keller did. He, he has so many quotes in this book that sometimes I lose track of if he's quoting somebody or if he's saying it himself. But God's wrath is not a lost temper, but his holiness 
released judicially against evil. There's a lot of long technical terms in that, uh, in that relatively short sentence. What, when you hear that holiness released judicially against evil, what are some things that come to mind about what that means and what it looks like? Why, why did he choose these words? So there's wrath, holiness, where it comes from. It's what it's based off of. It is proper that God is wrathful because he is holy. He's not arbitrarily wrathful. He's releasing it judicially, meaning legally he has a right to do this. Against what? Against, Tom? Yeah. Wickedness, evil, rebellion. He is completely proper in his wrath. It is not an unrighteous wrath. And to your points, he has done it with restraint, with extreme restraint. Think about, think about this way. The flood. He restrained himself in that he only brought a flood. He didn't bring other calamities. He restrained himself in that he provided humanity an escape through Noah and his family. But also think that at the same time he is executing his wrath on creation and humanity, he is, by the power of his will, holding all things together. So he is still holding us together and maintaining this creation that he created. At the same time, he's bringing wrath and judgment. I mean, unrestrained might be, I hold these things together. I will simply stop holding these things together, and you will no longer be here. And, oh, by the way, those of you who have eternal souls are now under my eternal wrath. Um, that's not what he did. At the same time he's bringing a flood, he held the earth together. God's wrath is rightly directed to evil, destroying the things he loves, or, yeah, at the evil destroying the things he loves, and punishing that which stands opposed to him for his glory and our benefit. And so, a couple points that uh, Keller makes, and this gets somewhat philosophical. I actually think Keller lost me. Um, in some of these sections, I didn't follow his train of thought. But to the extent I did, I've included notes about them, so we'll go there. But it's about the, the balance of wrath and love and how they are necessary to demonstrate each other, is how I would put it. How can we understand wrath and love if we don't have either one of them? How can we understand what it is to love? If we do not have a concept of wrath, how can we understand? Um, yeah, so we'll just get into my notes because that's easier. The wrath of God is an expression of God rightfully demanding love from human beings toward one another and toward him. He is demanded that we act a certain way. Why? Because he's holy and he's called us to be holy as he is holy because he's holy. That's how many times we're holy in one word and in one sentence. And the point that Keller brings out is how can we, as humanity, stand up and demand we act with love without an understanding of what that is? So apart from a moral standard, an absolute moral standard, there's no basis by which right conduct and love can be measured and judged. Society calls for us to love, but gives us no basis or standard by which to act. God's holiness and his righteousness does. Because he's holy and righteous, when we act apart from that, he brings wrath. But again, love loses its meaning if it is not accompanied with holiness. You know? I think it's the flip side of the coin. Yeah, because I mean... How can we understand what is loving if we don't also recognize that there's a standard by which we can act? And then real love will then come against that which is contrary to which, that which is good for us. Uh, C.S. Lewis, and this, uh, this, this is the fun part. We had a conversation about this a couple weeks ago at our men's group. Um, 
mainly related to the fact that we're currently in like four books, and I kept losing track of which book I was in and where this quote's from. It was this, Blake, it was this quote. This is the quote I was referencing. C.S. Lewis stated it this way, it is a ghastly simplicity. We remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect them, expect of them virtue and enterprise. Keller stated it this way, if all moral values are relative and social constructs, then how can you make the case that we ought to treat people with love and not exploit them? How will you motivate people to make sacrifices necessary to do justice if you tell them there's no redeeming divine love behind the universe? What is justice if there is no just judge? But on the contrary, to your point, real a real love often expresses itself in anger. I think this is where we can have that sort of righteous anger. But righteous anger at what? Righteous anger at sin. If, I, if we see ourselves or our children or those around us walking in a way that is contrary to the will of God and his decrees, then we can have anger, I would say, righteous anger at that. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to do that because that is, Blake... Yeah. 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 Was it was that Sproul or was that Luther? May may have been both. But yeah, no. This is this is why I started my voice started to go up a little level whenever I started talking about this. Because yes, I I agree. Um but uh he he I'm just going to read the quote that he quoted. Uh, Rebecca Manley, Hope Has Its Reasons. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. And if I, a flawed and sinful woman, can feel this pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God loves us, and he is angry at the sin. I mean, when I saw, when I talk about exercising righteous anger, we see an example of it in Christ clearing the temple. That means I am not Christ. Therefore, I'm going to be a lot, a lot more careful in, in you know, my exercise of righteous anger. Uh, not that he wasn't careful. I think by, by, uh, by nature, he was very careful. So the world can understand this God of wrath. They don't really understand a God of love. They understand judgment and condemnation. I think implicitly, and this is, I don't just think, Romans 1 talks about this. They understand standards, right conduct, that there is a moral uh, basis on which they should act. They also know that they stand outside of that, and they're in violation of that, though I would say that our deluded society seems to think that they can get away from that. Um, uh, but it's, it's just interesting and somewhat comical to see those who were quote-unquote virtuous you know, two years ago. The virtue of society has moved beyond them and now they are no longer virtuous. You see that, that happening a lot. So I think human history bears out that we understand our guilt, but how do we deal with it? Uh, how do we understand what it means to be shown mercy from the moral lawgiver? What you know, he 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 walked through some some discussions uh, about a page and a half of of where can we get this concept of a loving God? And his uh, his conclusion was only in Christianity is that concept proclaimed. Uh, it's not seen in in, in history, what do we see in history but violence, destruction, conflict. Um, we might see people acting with mercy and compassion at times. I would say that's a reflection of the Imago Dei. Uh, do we see it in other religions and philosophies? He didn't really do a broad survey of it. I've not done a broad survey of, of, of everything. That, that, was, that would take a lot, but this concept of a personal 
loving God who not only loves in a very abstract way, but has personally provided a means of forgiveness is uniquely Christian. I mean, where else are you going to see, you know, the man God coming down and taking on? And it goes back to that concept of we're not just being saved from some arbitrary, you know, wrath that is just out there in the universe. What are we being saved from? We are being saved from the wrath of God. And how is that salvation provided? Through the sacrifice of the Son of God. I mean, again, tell me how tell me how these things make sense apart from the reality of the cross. So it's really this is something very unique to Christianity, which shouldn't be a surprise to us. Um, we shouldn't be shocked that the world doesn't understand these things. And so, again, we come back to, we have this apparent attention between the love of God and the wrath of God, and how are these things accomplished simultaneously without compromise? And that's at the cross. So we'll get to that point. God in all his glory is revealed on the cross. At the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on the Son so that the love of God might be made manifest to his people. Keller opens the chapter, the very first paragraph, with this um, observation. The key to Christian forgiveness is the cross. So again, getting back to what, from where does our power flow? This, this whole point of the, the vertical and horizontal dimensions of forgiveness, the, the point that the forgiveness of Christ enables our own forgiveness. The key to Christian forgiveness is the cross. It is the foundation of forgiveness because it not only makes it possible for God to forgive us without compromising his justice, but it also provides motivation and model for our own forgiveness to those who wrong us. To understand how we, as angry, wronged persons can forgive, we must see how God, the ultimate wronged person, can forgive. The way he does this is the cross. So it's good. I like, I like the point he makes that standing behind our own affront is a bigger affront. The, the, the Injury to me, I don't know if injury is the right word. Affront is probably a better word. The affront to me is of a much lesser scale than the affront to God. I am not the primary offended party when someone sins against me. God is. And yet God has forgiven or provides forgiveness for sin. How can I do less when I am not God, especially whenever I'm also guilty of sinning against other people. I mean, you have, you have God who, frankly, could stand there as holier than thou because he actually is holier than thou. And he actually is one who could cast stones. Uh, you know, the, the example of the, the woman caught in sin. You know, he who's without sin. You know, well, the obvious answer is they all look at him. Oh, yeah, I can't. I can't. And the only person left when everyone else wanders off, is the sole person who could cast a stone. And what did he do? So John, uh, John Stott, and I, I love this quote, so I just included it wholesale. The concept of substitution may be said, then, to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is a man substituting himself for God. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself only where God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. So how then have we satisfied this tension between love and wrath? And it's that point, it's that Romans 3 point, God is both the just 
and the justifier. Both love and law have triumphed at the cross. One has not given way to the other. There's been no compromise. Law and love have both had their full scope. How? How has law been given its full scope? I'm open to somebody else answering that question. It's the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. Again, back to that substitution. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where man only deserves. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Law has been satisfied. Christ has satisfied it for us. Not only in his death, but in his life. The, the dual... Um, I can't remember the technical term. I'm blanking. Love has been satisfied. How? Because he's provided a way. Redemption. Bring back, being brought back into right relationship. Not one jot or tittle has been surrendered to the fool. The one in all its severity, the other in all its tenderness. At the cross, love has never been more truly love. And the law has never been more truly law than the conjunction of the two. And that was Horatio, Horatius Bonner. So again, consider this. And this is that list I wanted to, y'all to think about. Where do we see examples in Scripture of the wrath of God poured out? We've given some. David in the census. I blanked on the one you told me before. Like what was it? Oh. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm apparently getting there as well. <laughs> In the garden. Cain. That's another one I provided you. But in the Cain, he was given a mark to keep him safe for the remainder of his rest of the days. I don't remember. I think Keller might have. That might have been why I put it. I don't remember. Uh in the garden, God provided Adam and Eve a covering and a promise of future redemption and did not immediately kill him. Uh, God did not destroy all humanity in the flood, but provided a rescue for Noah and his family. Back to the Abraham pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his daughters were provided safety and a way out. God provided the sacrificial system pointing us to future need, and over and over and again, in his dealing with Israel, restrained his wrath. Um, he held back when he, uh, I don't know how many times it talks about God relenting from destroying Israel, but he certainly did a few times. But, yes, Brad? Uh, maybe. Explain. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's definitely the Tower of Babel is an example of, of uh, wrath that's been restrained and held, held in check. Tom? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I don't, I agree, I don't think he touched on it at all in the chapter, um, but it does add an additional, what I would say, additional layer and impact to our response at a minimum to his forgiveness. Because why did he provide us forgiveness? Um, Keller noted, um, I had it in my notes, but I don't know where they are in my notes, about why does he do this? It's for his glory and our benefit. I underlined his glory as the main point. And the reason is because God, our benefit does flow from his merciful acts and his loving kindness. But standing behind all of that is this knowledge that I am undeserving of all of it, and it is solely for his glory that he has acted. So how in walking through life and acting with forgiveness or not acting for, 
with forgiveness, if that is the case, how can, how can I do that if I am no more deserving of forgiveness than they? I, I've been forgiven by a, a just and holy God solely for his good purpose uh, and not based off anything that I have done, but all on the work of Christ. And I'm going to act with restrained forgiveness. So, yeah, I started off by saying I wasn't sure if we were going to get into nuts and bolts of how this works. Oh, God, y'all drug us there. So, uh, so what does this mean? Uh, Keller puts it this way. Uh, the law, once our enemy, has now become our friend. I want to be... I want to put this out there and then get your thoughts. Demanding, so this is speaking of the law, demanding our acceptance rather than our punishment. For God, who is just, cannot demand a double payment. And our advocate, who is Christ himself, stands before the throne on our behalf. But that the law, once our enemy, has become our friend. Um, thoughts on that? We've got no more time, but we'll, we'll close with this. <laughs> I heard it stated this way once. Uh, when, when somebody looks at, when somebody accuses you and points to your guilt and sin, a response is, I look to Christ and his work because he's the last one who had it. He's the last one who had my sin and it's been dealt with. Yeah. All right. Well, we are almost five minutes over, so any final thoughts before we... Wrap up. No. Yeah. Yeah. We were, being here today wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs>